This episode is brought to you by the Elite Academy, formerly known as hrvcourse.com. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy. Welcome to the Elite HRV podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today, is we'll be talking about something that we all do, and it's not breathing, it's not eating, it's not drinking, it's sleep. And sleep is something that, of course, um, everybody knows you should sleep more, sleep better, um, but we're not going to be just kind of going over this topic, uh, saying all the things that you've probably already heard I'm excited because Nick Lamb is joining us today, and Nick Lamb is a massage therapist. He's a strength and conditioning and fitness coach, and uh, also has developed somewhat of a practice around sleep coaching, and sleep is something that Nick and I can both really appreciate on the personal level as well because we have children under the age of one, and so it hits close to home for me, and I'm sure for Nick too. Welcome to the show, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the uh, the young uh, young child definitely plays a plays a pretty significant role. Um, I had to restructure the way I think about uh, my own sleep a little bit over the last year. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it's brought new and interesting challenges to me as well. And um, but it's fun. It's fun. I have to say, it's it's an adventure. Like we said before, we hit record. And uh, so so we're gonna talk sleep. And uh, this is a really important topic. In fact, one of the things we've seen as people measure their HRV over time is that they're often surprised at how much small changes in their sleep can actually impact their HRV. And so if people are tracking uh, their sleep or if they're tracking HRV or anything else about their health or fitness or performance, stress, all of these things are definitely impacted by sleep and it's usually quite measurable. So what I want to kind of kick things off with you is setting the stage a little bit of, you know, generally what what does sleep do for us and uh, what are the kind of the basics of sleep that we need to understand before we dig into how to hack it or how to improve it or, you know, those things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think <clears throat> first, you know, firstly is kind of talking about why it is that we actually sleep. Um, and re- in reality, there's no really one specific reason or one specific theory as to why we sleep. Um, there's a lot of things that were out there <clears throat> that were that scientists were trying to figure out, you know, whether it was to conserve energy or anything along those lines. But rather, we have to look at sleep as really the restoration of every single process and system within our body. Um, you know, so just really reframing the way that we look at sleep, it's not just a time to rest, um, but rather, you know, a time where each night you have the opportunity for your body to really hit the reset button and rejuvenate itself. So I look at sleep as being ultimately your best life insurance policy, you know, because of the, the fact that it affects 
pretty much every single system of your body, either positively when you're getting it or negatively when you're not. So, you know, what got me into sleep is I really just was fascinated by the fact that we have this one single lever um, that we can pull that influences so many elements of your health and of your quality of life, um, you know, down to the very person that you are, how you interact with the people that you love, your mood, your motivation. Um, and then it also really intrigued me how little attention sleep sometimes gets. Um, it's talked about, but rarely is it prioritized, especially when we compare it to exercise and nutrition. So, you know, I think intuitively we all know how important sleep is. We know how we feel when we don't get it. Um, we seek more about more of it out when we're sleep. Um, if we think of all the things, you know, that we know that are good for us to improve our health, uh, I think sleep is by far the most pleasant for us to do. You know, who does enjoy uh, a good night's sleep? You know, and the reality is that <clears throat> people deprive themselves of sleep almost almost proudly. You know, kind of the expressions like "I'll sleep when I'm dead," and you know, modern society has unfortunately looked down on sleep for some time now. Um, you know, I always use the example: imagine if you went into you know, the office on Monday and bragged about catching up on your sleep over the weekend, you know, you'd be looked at as having had a lazy and unproductive weekend. Um, <laughs> we don't say the same things about exercise and nutrition. Right. And you know, it's interesting is I've noticed that sleep and our, our relationship with sleep is adaptive, just like everything for uh, humans is adaptive. And so uh, oftentimes what happens is people kind of cut corners on sleep and they slowly do that more and more over time. And, you know, like you said, you do notice when you've had a bad night's sleep, if that's relative to otherwise seemingly normal sleep for you. But if people chip away at it over time and sleep less and less and less and less, or get more and more um, dependent upon unnatural sleep aids, like watching TV to fall asleep or take or drinking alcohol, those types of things that eventually that becomes your norm and it feels normal. It feels like that. I think that kind of contributes to what you were just talking about of people saying, um, oh yeah, I, I can do five hours a night, no problem. And I've been doing that for years. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that having a baby, that happened to me gradually, but it was it's more natural, so to speak, because uh, there's uh, extenuating circumstances. But our baby being three and a half months old, she has recently just started sleeping up to nine hours at night occasionally, and which is pretty amazing. And uh, awesome. yeah, it's it's pretty fantastic at this age as well that she's already kind of stretching for that. And um, I have to say that I didn't realize the impact that my sleep was having on me because it gradually had gotten worse and worse leading up to the birth and then definitely after. And then getting those solid like eight hours, for example, um, has made, I was just like, wow, I feel like a different person. I didn't even realize how much of an effect it had had on me because it had gradually happened over the course of several months and I'm pretty in tune to sleep and, uh, you know, looking at the bigger picture. And I kind of just expected my HRV to be a little bit lower anyways, which has been the case um, due to all the changes in our life recently. Um, but yeah, so I just didn't expect to feel so different uh, having that immediate change in my sleep for the better. And so I just wanted to highlight as a personal experience, this is definitely... Uh, close to home topic. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you touched on it and it's, <clears throat> it's the other un- unfortunate piece to this is that people really do, in my experience, tend to be pretty terrible at self rating their sleep. Um, and, you know, branching off of that, how they're able to function with less quality of sleep or diminished quality of sleep. Um, you know, it becomes their new norm. They've set a new norm and they've, they've really forgotten what it feels like to have natural energy upon waking up and be focused throughout the day. And, you know, like you mentioned, feeling like a different person. So, Right. And, and I think another thing I noticed, which we can dig more into in a bit is that when my sleep, uh, was disrupted and again, I kind of expected this, but I'm, I spend all day thinking about this type of stuff. So maybe a little different, but, uh, I had more cravings. I had more cravings for simple carbohydrates. Um, I had, uh, less willpower to go work out, uh, things like that. And, Uh, So it definitely impacted other areas of my life noticeably. And yeah, it's uh, something I'm looking forward to getting it all back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll touch more on that. But, you know, sleep is the is the ultimate ultimate balancer of, you know, your autonomic nervous system. It's the ultimate balancer of the hormones within your body. So, you know, you touched on the nutritional piece, you know, your cravings um, when you're hungry, when you're satiated. Um, the hormones that signal those things are are imbalanced by a lack of sleep. Um, you, you touched on motivation. Obviously, sleep is going to play a major role there. So, you know, I just <clears throat> I look at sleep as the the ultimate ultimate balancing tool, the ultimate um, the ultimate ultimate regulator. Everyone's looking for a magic pill to solve their uh, health, fitness, stress, uh, all those things. Uh, <laughs> seems seems like sleep is a good place to start looking for that. Um, and sure, it won't cure everything, but seems like a dang good place to start. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just because of the influence that it has on, on so many other, other processes. Like I said, it's kind of that, that one lever um, that we talk about that can, that can impact so many, different, uh, so many different avenues. So you know, if we kind of get into understanding how sleep actually occurs, um, I think it's important to, to understand this foundation in order to really be able to optimize your sleep. So you really have two mechanisms or processes to asleep uh, to sleep. So firstly you have your circadian rhythm and then secondly you have adenosine which is your sleep pressure. Um, the important thing to note with these is that they operate independently of one another so they aren't necessarily influenced by each other. Uh, your circadian rhythm is your body's internal 24-hour clock and adenosine is a chemical that builds up in your brain throughout the day signaling how sleepy that you'll feel. <clears throat> And when we get the most optimal sleep is where we get the convergence of these of these two things where your circadian rhythm is most in line and you have the most amount of this chemical built up in your brain. And if we go a step further, you know, we talked about hormone balance. We're really talking about balancing three hormones when it comes to sleep. So firstly, we have cortisol, which people will associate very well as being a, a stress hormone. So ideally, cortisol will rise in the morning and fall in the evening. Then we have melatonin, which everybody knows as it pertains to sleep. And ideally, melatonin will do the opposite, falling in the morning and rising in the evening. And then we have that adenosine chemical that builds up while we're awake. And melatonin and cortisol are very closely regulated by your circadian rhythm, um, which we'll talk a lot more about. So you know, if you disrupt any of these processes, you're really going to disrupt your sleep quality or your sleep quantity. Right. Okay. And so, and 
these types of things are uh, obviously it's it's great to know the foundational uh, mechanisms that cause sleep, um, but we're then translating it to okay, so what can I do to kind of assess my situation? Um, is there are are we looking at measuring? Uh, cortisol, melatonin, adenosine, or for the average person, are there other ways that we can assess the quality of our sleep and our sleep cycle? Yeah. So <clears throat> from an assessment, uh, from an assessment standpoint to kind of determine your baseline and determine where you're starting, um, you don't necessarily need to go and get blood tests done and, and look at these, you know, these hormones and, you know, when you're getting cortisol, when you're getting melatonin released, um, most of these things are going to be impacted by your lifestyle. So, you know, a, a a good look at your lifestyle as it pertains to sleep, how much daylight you're getting during the day, um, how much darkness you're getting at night. Um, there are some questionnaires that do help to determine your sleep health that I often use with clients. Um, one is the, the SATED questionnaire. So that's S-A-T-E-D. Um, another is the Epsworth sleepiness scale. And these can just kind of give you, um, quote unquote, an objective starting point um, of your health. But you know, really the, the, the best, the best metric is the, the simple subjective test of, you know, how do you feel? Do you feel rested upon waking? Um, do you need caffeine within the first hour or two of being awake, even though those cortisol levels should be making you feel awake? Um, do you need an alarm to wake up? So I think that's the, the most important things to, to be looking at. Okay. So, um, if you need an alarm to wake up, either you have to wake up really early for your job or something, and or that may be a sign that you're you have some opportunity to improve on the sleep quality or quantity side. And um, I've found that there's um, some pretty decent uh, tracking tools out there, and. When I say decent, it's kind of like just depends on your situation and things like that. Um, but there's there's free apps on your phone that if you are willing to put your phone in your bed with you, um, you they'll track like noise and movement and things like that and let you know if you're, um, you know, sleeping restlessly, right. things like that. Um, and those I I haven't I don't have any data on whether or not those are um, reliable, but um, it seems like if you're worried about having restless sleep, that might be an interesting option to choose. And then the other that just being exposed to this, again, kind of mentioned at the beginning is that morning HRV reading, um, because the morning HRV reading is going to be most strongly impacted by their sleep that right. you just woke up from. And so unless you woke up and did a hundred pushups before your morning reading, then it might be the pushups actually that's uh, <laughs> affecting the score the most. But um, yeah, that, that's one way that we've found people have had good success tracking the uh, different sleep hacks and tweaks that they've done is taking that morning HRV. Yeah. So I, that's, that's part of what got me into sleep in the first place. Um, you know, being a trainer and strength coach, I kind of got into heart rate variability tracking the, the same way as most trainers and coaches thinking that the biggest influence on heart rate variability was going to be my training sessions. And I was going to be able to tailor my training sessions based on heart rate variability, which, which I was, but you know, you quickly started to see that it was all these other variables that were most uh, dramatically impacting heart rate variability and nothing impacted heart rate variability more than sleep, both in the short term and the long term. 
um, even very, very small disruptions in sleep. So, you know, once you have a good baseline of HRV, that's probably the biggest thing that I recommend for people to track alongside sleep. Um, on a quick note on sleep trackers is, you know, you, you mentioned it, it really depends on the situation. I feel like sleep trackers can go either way. Um, for example, a lot of people who struggle with sleep, who have sleep issues, um, really the biggest problem with it is an overactivation of their sympathetic nervous system, especially around the timing of sleep, um, anxiety and stress built around their sleep. So typically my general recommendation for someone who struggles with sleep, who genuinely struggles sleeping, is not to track with a tracker. Um, unless you're the type of person who, you know, having that information, having that data doesn't make you more anxious. I think sometimes sleep trackers can create and perpetuate a little bit of too much anxiety around mm. sleep, um, more than what already exists. So that's a good point. You know, with that being said, you know, for someone who doesn't have, you know, sleep issues per se, and just really is looking to optimize their sleep, you know, it can be in, impactful. It does create some awareness around sleep in general, um, and how specific lifestyle variables can impact sleep and in turn your health. Um, when we talk about accuracy of the sleep trackers, they tend to be fairly good at estimating your time asleep, um, but most of them not so good in terms of differentiation or true differentiation between your stages of sleep. Mm -hmm. um, among the ones, and I've I've kind of played around with a lot of these, among the ones that I've used, I think the Aura Ring is probably the, the best and the one that I would recommend. Um, I don't really see a lot of merit in something that actually isn't on your person. You know, things like phone on the stand or sensor under the mattress. I think these tend these things tend to um, potentially give us a lot of not so great data, and if we're basing you know our decision making off of that data it can tend to be uh, a little misleading. Right. Yep. Yeah. I have, uh, I have the same view actually. I feel like the Aura Ring has been the best sleep tracker that I've seen. And, um, you know, part of that, like you said, is, uh, it's on the body. And one of the things I think that if people aren't having, uh, general, um, anxiety or issues around falling asleep, things like that, that one of the, the good things that it does is measure, uh, temperature. And I think that's, that's one of the optimizations that people can look at. And, you know, obviously you'll have a lot more optimizations and tips, but we can talk about that in a bit. But again, I think uh, you are right. You know, if you're worried about if it's more of a psychological thing and that your, your mind is racing um, in general with tracking anything, um, there's kind of like a double edged sword to it is um, track things, uh, what they, you know, what gets measured gets managed or what get measured gets improved is a common sayings. But I would say that's not the case if it gives you anxiety. <laughs> and, and that seems to be true here too, with tracking sleep. Um, yeah. And so, you know, knowing yeah. your own situation is good. Yeah, absolutely. It comes down to, like you said, it's just knowing what your specific situation and you know, if you're the type of person who, you know, does better with having data, or if you know, you're the type who having that data is, um, you know, is more creates more anxiety for you. So, mm -hmm. so awesome. So there's a few ways that in there that people can experiment with assessing their sleep. Um, and, uh, you talked a little bit about sleep stages and, uh, I know it's pretty difficult to actually measure the sleep stages with any kind of consumer device. Um, but, you know, 
what do we need to know about sleep stages? And is there a way that we can kind of figure out if we're adequately getting into the deep sleep and REM sleep, which I know are the kind of two that can be elusive if sleep quality isn't good? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just very quickly, the two subdivisions that we have to our sleep are non-REM sleep and REM sleep. So non-rapid eye movement and rapid eye movement, which is our dream sleep. Our non-rapid eye movement sleep is divided into four stages, um, increasing in depth. Um, We typically go through all of these sleep stages every 90 minutes. Um, Stages three and four are are probably the most restorative, where we're going to see improvements in blood pressure, um, where we're going to see tissue repair. Um, In stage two, you know, we're going to see the most amount of what we call sleep spindles, um, these electrical bursts of activity that are going to coincide with, you know, memory consolidation. Um, If we were going to vaguely categorize these, you know, we would say maybe that non-REM is restorative for the body and REM sleep is very restorative for the mind um, or creativity or emotional regulation. I think the thing to note is both are important. People get really hung up on the, you know, the non-REM deep sleep, which obviously is very important, but REM sleep is just as important. Um, I think... For example, REM sleep is where we see the greatest increases in heart rate variability. You get the most fluctuations in your heart rate. So I think an important thing to note is mm-hmm. if you're looking at when you're not getting sleep, um, if you look at, you get more of the non-REM sleep in the first half of the night, so a greater percentage of non-REM sleep. And then in the second half of the night, you're getting a greater percentage of your rapid eye movement or your REM sleep. So if we think about this in terms of when petite people could potentially shortchange their sleep. Um, if you're shortchanging, you know, by going to bed later and potentially missing out on that first half of the night, you could be potentially missing out on, you know, some of those physically uh, restorative processes. And then if you're getting up a lot earlier um, than you typically would, and you're robbing yourself for the second half of the night, you're missing out on some of those, um, you know, mental uh, mental benefits of of REM sleep. Um, you know, an important thing to to look at is there's <clears throat> there's different lifestyle variables that are going to rob uh, rob each of these. For example, uh, alcohol tends to be one of the biggest suppressors of REM sleep. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess that uh, we've we've heard lots of reports of uh, people experimenting with alcohol, and uh, you know, first HRV, but then immediately they realize how much it impacts their sleep, which may actually end up being sort of the indirect uh, big impact that it's having on their HRV. Is if they're if they're using alcohol to fall asleep, then that's definitely something people have noticed a benefit of of trying to stop doing that and finding other ways to fall asleep. Um, because the quality of their sleep seems to be much much less when they do that. But even people experimenting with what time uh, in the evening that they stop drinking uh, alcohol if they're not using it to fall asleep. And then, of course, the quantity. So like a quick summary there is people find that, okay, if I drink one glass of wine or two glasses of wine, that that seems to be okay as long as everything else is going fine. And then if they drink three plus, like three, four, five glasses, something like that, um, before or in the evening, then pretty much they can see guaranteed that their HRV will be impacted and their sleep quality. And then if they really pay attention, they can notice a quality of their cognition and things 
the following days. And people will do that by pretty much using the tagging function in our app where they tag alcohol and then they go back and look at all the readings after they've uh, consumed different levels of alcohol. Um, but then, yeah, I mentioned the timing as well. Some people find if they do one or two glasses, if they do it late in the evening, that's a big no-no for them on their sleep quality and HRV and then cognition the following days. And then if they do it a little earlier, then they actually can maybe get away with it a little bit more, give their body time to process it before that circadian rhythm kicks in and, and before they need to go to sleep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the timing is really important. And, you know, what you're using the alcohol for, I think is really important too. So, you know, in the cases of people using it really as a sleep aid, um, where it's it's close to bedtime and it helps them fall asleep, um, I think it's important to note that <clears throat> with alcohol, you're not really inducing naturalistic sleep. Um, you're really sedating yourself. Um, so sedation and sleep are not the same thing. So, you know, if you're using, you know, alcohol as a, as a sleep aid, you know, too close to bed, um, you know, we'll talk about some other um, interventions and things that you can do, but <clears throat> definitely not the not the way to go. Yeah, and you know, it's um, it's really interesting sedation versus sleep. Um, I think that's something I haven't heard clearly defined in many places. And so, um, one thing before I ask you to kind of just quickly define those is um, we're also not coming from from a position of judgment. Um, because both Nick and I have worked with many people on improving their health, improving their stress, their their lifestyle, their fitness, and all of that. And we know that people come from different scenarios and are also trying to, um, you know, do the best they can to get through uh, situations that they're in. So this isn't a position of us kind of trying to shame anyone. Um, if you do use alcohol for uh, to sedate yourself, so to speak, which we'll learn a bit more yeah, I mean, about. Absolutely not. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the thing with, with alcohol too is, you know, if we look at people with, with sleep issues and we talked a little bit about stress, you know, the, the common thread for people with insomnia is an overactive sympathetic nervous system, um, is the, you know, the inability to kind of dampen that sympathetic nervous system down, especially around the time of sleep. So, you know, if you're able to find a balance where, you know, having one drink a night here, you know, here or there does help, you know, decrease the stress levels. I think there's, there's definitely a trade-off there as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's some, uh, hacks, so to speak, that, uh, I've heard many people report great success with in calming down the nervous system side of the equation. So, um, just doing some light stretching before bed, um, physical movement is a great way to, uh, channel your body's sympathetic drive into something that it's designed for, but you don't want to do high intensity exercise right before bed. At least that's my experience as far as it relation relation to sleep sleep quality. Um, but some light stretching could help, and then another is doing some contrast temperature showering or bathing, um, where basically you uh, you can take like a normal shower. And then for the last couple minutes of your shower, or even just people have reported benefit of just 60 seconds, turning the water to cold and letting that cold water run over you, it actually does sort of have a mildly sympathetic response when you do that um, because of the temperature shift. But again, it's, it's a response that the nervous system was designed for evolutionarily to deal with temperature change. And then it almost kind of allows the nervous system to relax after that 
as it uh, comes down and, you know, back to like uh, room temperature scenario. And so um, those are a couple things. Um, and then some things that people have done that are a little bit more, um, in my opinion, uh, more difficult for some people is to do uh, meditations or guided breathing. And it sounds funny maybe to say that that's more difficult than taking a cold shower, but it really is hard to turn off the mind in some cases if you're if that's what's going on is if your mind's racing. So there's many different tools in your in the toolkit, and you can kind of see what works for you. And Nick, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah. So so firstly, in regards to the the temperature and the you know cold showers, hot showers um, around bed, um, we talk you know we talk a lot about light being an important regulator of your circadian rhythm. You know the next most important regulator of your circadian rhythm is temperature. Um, and, you know, being in thermostat controlled environments all day, we really deprived ourselves of, you know, the natural rise and fall of, of temperature throughout the day. So, you know, a gradual drop in temperature, you know, in your house or in your apartment throughout the evening is really important. <clears throat> and, you know, I usually recommend one of the best hacks is actually a warm, uh, warm bath before bed. And it's for the opposite reason of what people typically think they typically associate, um, you know, the warm bath with they feel warm and cozy afterwards and it helps them sleep. But what you're actually doing is you're actually drawing uh, blood out to your extremities, pulling it away from your core. So you're causing a, a decrease in your body's core temperature, which is definitely an important regulator that'll help you sleep. So, you know, I usually recommend actually a warm, uh, warm bath or a warm shower right before bed it helps, uh, tends to help with that drop in body temperature. Nice. Yeah. And is that real quick on that, is there a difference between warm and hot? Um, I think there, it, I don't recommend that it being too hot. Um, it tends to, I get, I think trigger too much of a, of a sympathetic response. So I, you know, I tend to, I tend to go for, yeah, for the warm, it just needs to, you can even warm just your, your hands and feet. Cause the idea is you're just trying to draw blood to the extremities, pulling it away from your core, which is going to decrease your body's core temperature. Um, and in order to initiate good sleep, you know, your body needs to drop, your core temperature needs to drop a, a few degrees. Awesome. So awesome. Yeah. Um, and then in, in regards quickly to, you know, the, the stress management piece, you know, you kind of touched on it. Meditation can be difficult for a lot of people to do. And, you know, if they're not particularly good at meditation, you know, it ends up frustrating them more and has the opposite effect of what you want. So something that I've had success doing with people is, is journaling. Um, you know, taking whatever about 30 to 45 minutes before bed and actually journaling. So what I mean by that is really just writing down what your, your thoughts, your worries, your to do's are, you know, so that you kind of eliminate some of that lying in bed, thinking about all of those things, the things that you need to do, you know, they're at least written down. So I think I want to add to that too, is that I've experimented with that. And I found that it definitely has to be at least 30 minutes before I try to go to sleep because if I do it like right as I'm trying to go to sleep, then that actually can activate some thoughts a little bit more for me. And so if I do it like right in bed, right before I'm going to try to lay down and go to sleep, that has a different outcome for me personally than if I um, try to wind down and do that 30 minutes to an hour before sleep, or maybe even a little bit more than that. So I'm trying to extend my sleep routine further and further back, uh, away from the actual event of going to sleep. And, you know, that's pretty challenging because I am juggling a lot of things right now, 
but it seems to be worth the effort. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, <clears throat> I often, you know, people will get fixated on, you know, the, the time that they need to go to, to go to bed, which is obviously so important. And we'll, we'll talk about that, but you know, in a lot of instances, I think people are sometimes better served going to bed a half hour later um, and carving out more of a pre-sleep routine because you're just going to drastically improve the quality of the sleep that you're getting. You know, instead of going right from the the laptop to in bed, um, just because it's quote unquote time to go to bed, you know, you have to allow yourself some type of window, even if it means you know at the start you go to bed a little bit later. You know, you have to give yourself that thirty to sixty minute window to really um, really wind down. That's a pretty interesting tip that I don't think I have heard a lot of people say is, you know, uh, quality of sleep is so important and I definitely understand that. Um, but you know, quantity is also important and a lot of people focus more on quantity than quality. So it may go against what people are used to hearing. If you say it may, you know, again, this is caveated with it's not every situation, um, if you're just trying to cram, you know, five hours of sleep in between two, uh, shifts at the hospital or something like that, then you got to do what you got to do. But, um, taking maybe even a few minutes out of your sleep quantity to carve out a routine that will enhance the quality is a really interesting concept. And just off the top of my head, it kind of, um, in a way makes sense too, with how we're working with our, our baby, Madeline, our, our three and a half month year old or month year, our three and a half month old. And, um, what we found is that creating some healthy routines and healthy sleep associations for her has made it very, or not very, but much easier for her to understand when she should be going to sleep and, you know, uh, when she should be awake. And so part of that is uh, keeping a really dark room for where when it's sleep time, um, winding down the temperature in our house, uh, or conversely, at least letting the temperature rise a little higher during the day um, because everything's kind of relative, right? And then uh, we have experimented with some white noise. We've experimented with different, you know, outfits like during the day, keeping her a little bit less clothed. And uh, obviously, we're keeping her protected and safe and all that stuff, but um, letting her be a little more free during the day and then having a little bit more, uh, you know, clothing on her at night uh, aside, and but still trying to manage the temperature. And anyways, the point I'm trying to make here is that we've tried to make a routine around sleep for her so that it's not a surprise to her. Okay, we're doing these steps and um, it's time to sleep now. And it seems to be working really well for her. And a lot of people are surprised at how well she goes down and how well she sleeps. But we've been trying really hard at that. And it's just an N equals one story. But so far, it's yeah. working. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, for her right now, her circadian rhythm is is just developing now. So the, you know, the things that you, things that you do, you, you know, you have the greatest influence on what her circadian rhythm will be going forward from here. So you're doing, you're doing all the right, all the right things. Those are all the inputs and things that that we lose as we get older that really disrupt our, our kind of natural circadian rhythm. You know, I think the thing to note with, with what I just mentioned in terms of, you know, maybe going to bed a little bit later, but prioritizing that sleep routine, you know, that doesn't have to be a long lasting strategy. You know, one of the things in the toolbox for 
um, what we call cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which has recently been deemed the first line of treatment for insomnia. It's something that I implement a lot of the principles. One of the the things in the toolbox is actually sleep restriction. Um, and as counterintuitive as that sounds, and it has to be specific to the situation, but what you're doing is you're restricting your your time in bed and you're actually going to bed <clears throat> a little bit later um, because you're getting an increase in that buildup of what we talked about earlier, that adenosine, that sleep pressure. Um, and what you do with that is the more of that sleep pressure that builds up, you know, the better quality of sleep that you're going to have, you know, and that kind of cascades into improving your confidence around sleep as well. Um, a few nights where you're just getting better quality of sleep, you know, eventually you can kind of trim that bedtime back a little bit and you have more confidence built up around your sleep. Interesting. That sounds to me like something that I would recommend somebody working with a sleep coach on, um, is I don't know if I would recommend, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if anyone tries to go to bed later as a first line of strategy, unless they were talking to somebody who was walking them through the right context for that. Is that what you would say? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the tools in, like I said, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And, and with that, it's a, it's a very specific, either five or six week process that you're going through where one week builds off the next. And it's based off of, um, based off an assessment uh, that's individualized to, to you, you know, you never, you never want to go to a strategy like that until you've tried the, you know, the, the, the typical hygiene hacks. And I know there, you know, there's a lot of things that are out there on the internet that people talk about a lot, but what it, sometimes what it really comes down to is just prioritization. Like how long have you really prioritized these sleep hygiene tips um, and really implementing in, them into your life, you know, to, to see if you, if you drive the needle forward and if not, then you can, you know, start to play around with other, other methods. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk a little bit more about insomnia. There's different types of insomnia. What are those? And what are some tips that people can do to kind of maybe try to move the needle with those? Yeah. So I think, I think firstly is that insomnia is kind of one of those general terms that gets thrown around a lot. Um, you know, a lot of instances, you know, people may not have what we would deem clinical insomnia. So for it to really be considered clinical insomnia, it's got to be, you know, at least three nights a week um, for a period of three months or more. You know, we all have quote unquote insomnia at times where we have, you know, trouble sleeping, you know, for a week or for a particular night. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have chronic insomnia per se. Um, in terms of the types of insomnia, you know, the two main subcategories you have are sleep onset insomnia, which is trouble falling asleep, and then sleep maintenance insomnia, which is trouble staying asleep. Um, you know, in every instance is, is different, obviously, but very often the common thread with insomnia is that it's very behavioral. So, you know, it may be secondary to some type of traumatic event, whether it's a death in the family or um, anything along those lines where you go through a period that your sleep is disrupted. Um, and then it really is the learned behaviors after that that become uh, chronic and, you know, make it quote unquote insomnia. So, okay. So that, the learned behavior concept is interesting. And does that apply to both the onset and the maintenance insomnia in your experience? It, uh, yeah, it definitely does. Um, you know, the, like I said, the, the common thread with really with any type of insomnia patients, whether it's secondary insomnia, whether it's the onset, the maintenance, um, is firstly the, those learned, those learned behaviors, um, and learned negative thoughts around sleep. 
And then the other common thread is, and we already kind of touched on this, is just an overactive sympathetic nervous system where they're getting, you know, these wrongly timed spikes in cortisol. You know, we talked about cortisol should rise in the morning and then fall in the evening. Um, with people who have insomnia or variations of it, you know, we're seeing spikes in cortisol around the time of when they're trying to fall asleep, or, you know, sometimes even people will get spikes in cortisol in the middle of the night. So, right. And, um, awesome. So, uh, I just, just kind of realizing we're, uh, coming up on 40 minutes here and there's a lot more we can dig into with sleep, but I think what we can do is, um, go over some of the misconceptions and myths that happen around sleep and then kind of wrap it up there. And then for, I think that definitely a round two is necessary here. And what I've been doing is I've been doing a lot of sleep tweaking, sleep hacking lately um, because of my situation with my my young uh, baby Madeline. And uh, it's really brought sleep back into the forefront of my, my uh, general awareness. And so I've been playing with a lot of new tools and techniques and implementing some of the things we've been talking about here. Um, and so I'm collecting a lot of data on that to then share in a future discussion. But um, so I'm excited to share that with everybody. But in the meantime, what are some misconceptions and myths that happen around sleep? Uh, because I know that, you know, like you said, it's pretty intuitive when people get bad sleep, that they should try to correct that. Um, so there's a lot of discussion about sleep out there, but uh, I want to make sure that people kind of get a second opinion on some of the things that they've been hearing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what I'd like to definitely talk about in, in part two, and, and when we get into the, you know, the practical portion of all of this is, you know, really the, the ever evolving field of um, circadian biology, which is really just the, the findings of how important your circadian rhythm is, um, not just to your sleep, but, you know, people don't even realize that so many other physiological processes within your body, um, you know, fall on this internal clock and fall on, you know, the, the influence of your circadian rhythm. So there's really ways that you can go about optimizing your circadian rhythm and really keeping it in line with not only your sleep, but all of the other things that you do, which is going to have an impact on so many different avenues of, uh, of your health. So, you know, it's something I definitely would like to spend a lot of time talking about. Um, in regards to, you know, some of the misconceptions and, and myths that are, that are out there, uh, the first, you know, everyone needs exactly eight hours of sleep. Um, you know, I think this is, this is misleading because people get this eight hour, uh, thing in their head. And if they're not getting eight hours of sleep, you know, it's a, it's a fail. And I think there's a lot more to it than that. There's there's the quality of sleep. There's the cycling of sleep. There's um, there's a lot of different variables that go into that. And you know, we find that if you're getting seven hours of good quality sleep, that's very impactful for your health. So you know, not getting fixated on this kind of myth of of eight hours. So you know, maybe in the next uh, next part, we'll talk a little bit about sleep scheduling and thinking about your sleep more in terms of cycles um, as opposed to hours. Mm, interesting. Um, yep. The other. The other thing is that you can make up on a on sleep debt, you know, that you can, the common thing that people will do is they'll sleep a lot more on the weekends. And for one, you can't make up sleep debt. So a, a loss of sleep in, an, in a particular night, um, you've lost the physiological benefits of sleep for that particular night. There's, there's no real quote unquote making up for that. 
Um, and a lot of the pitfalls that come from that is, you know, when you are sleeping in later on the weekends or, you know, really you're having to reset your circadian rhythm every single Monday. Um, and you're never going to really get an inlined and entrained circadian rhythm. And that's going to have an impact on not only sleep, but like we, like we mentioned so many other variables of your health. So, you know, Wow. I, I would like to just interject in a, a, a dot that I connected when you said that. And um, sleep debt is something, you know, I, I had heard that myth and I've heard it kind of debunked as well. But it what it you said something that you can't make up for that sleep. Um, and it it's like, uh, especially if sleep is doing muscle repair, tissue repair, mem- long term memory formation, if you think about it from that context, it seems to make a lot of sense that you can't make up for that sleep debt because it's, you know, you work out during the day, you learn new things, uh, form memories, and then you go to sleep that night to repair that. Well, if you pass on that sleep or you get, you know, not too good of sleep and then you try to make up for it five days later, well, your muscles aren't just still sitting around, you know, kind of waiting to be repaired from that workout and your memories aren't kind of just in a hard drive waiting to be categorized for when you do sleep someday. Um, yeah, so absolutely. it's a, it's an, you know, it's an all or nothing, you know, when it comes to all those things that you, that you mentioned. So that being said, of course, coming back to the anxiety piece is, um, you know, Uh, we're resilient creatures and just having a couple nights of bad sleep doesn't mean that you're going to be necessarily uh, very much slower or uh, have a worse memory or anything like that. It's just something that you don't want to happen regularly because you want your average situation to be really good, right? Yeah. I think, you know, the, the misconception of that you can't make up on sleep debt in an individual night, but it's this the idea that it's never too late to improve your sleep overall. So just because even if you've been going through a period of sleeping poorly, you know, it's never too late to start to prioritize sleep and and you know, all the negative things that people will talk about with sleep, you know, after a few weeks of you really fine-tuning your sleep, we we start to see all of these metrics improve, whether it's heart rate variability, blood pressure, um, inflammatory markers, we see all of these things improve. So you can you can utilize sleep to, to very quickly kind of hit the reset, uh, reset button for yourself. So it's, whenever you prioritize it and, you know, start to optimize it, you're, you're going to optimize your health in turn. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow there. You had some other misconceptions. Um, no, I mean, there's, there's definitely probably more, but those are the, those are the big, I think the big, gotcha. uh, big rocks if you wanted to, to cut off there. Yeah, sure. And, um, you know, when you mentioned circadian biology, that's something I've been reading a ton about lately. And, uh, of course, kind of geeking out on the primary research and things like that. Um, and that has been sort of the, the underlying theme of my sleep hacks and optimizations that I've been doing right now. And so, uh, been playing with different temperature patterns, been playing with different, uh, pre-bed routines, um, doing different things with lighting, although we had already kind of uh, optimize the lighting pretty well in our house. Um, but the other big ones are timing and type of exercise and timing of eating as well. Um, because you know, those have carryover effects on, uh, hormone signaling as well as body temperature and core temperature. And then, uh, yeah, just general kind of circadian rhythm. So, um, excited to share all of my, uh, adventures with everybody, but, 
I think this provides an extremely good foundation for people to uh, think about a lot of new things with with regard to sleep. And if you're interested in learning more about it, you know, Nick uh, and I have been in contact for a while now, probably a couple of years even, um, back and forth via email and then had some calls and and then we recently had children around the same time. So um been getting to know each other better there. But where can people learn more about you, Nick, and find, you know, your sleep coaching practice and also just more information about all this? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, <clears throat> I just recently started a started a brand centered around really just trying to uh, bring sleep more into the the forefront of of its impact on health and wellness and fitness, and it's just not getting enough attention. So, you know, I started a brand where it's it's centered around the educational piece, doing things like this, where you know it's educating people on the importance of sleep and how they can optimize their sleep. And then, you know, the other piece of that is is coaching. And I think I think sleep requires coaching, just like. Uh, just like any of the other things that we would hire a coach or a trainer for, um, exercise, nutrition, they require the same thing. Uh, it requires the same things. It requires, um, you know, the education and guidance based off of an assessment. It requires the accountability. Um, so my goal is really just to to reach as many people and and help them optimize their sleep through through these coaching principles. So um, there's a uh, website currently in development. It's the onlinesleepcoach.com. And then on Instagram, uh, the online sleep coach, as well as Facebook. So uh, those are some of the ways that you can uh, can connect with me. Awesome. And, you know, really appreciate your time, Nick. And, you know, just for everyone listening, Nick did send a few bullet points of topics that we could cover. And I'm looking at the bullet point list right now and thinking that round two is definitely going to be exciting as well, because uh, we have some example scheduling and routines on there. Um, different lifestyle variables that we can tweak, going a little bit more into sleep medications and sleep aids, and even talking about sleep apnea and screening for that. So a lot to discuss still, and this is such a deep topic. And um, yep, looking forward to it, but really appreciate your time today, Nick, and sharing this info with us. And uh, that's theonlinesleepcoach.com. And with that, we'll wrap it up. The The show notes are over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. Thanks again, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward to, uh, to round two and really diving into all the, the practical pieces for everybody. Awesome. Cheers. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy.